Got a fantastic show today. We are talking to Jason Langstorff. So if you haven't heard of Jason, he does learnwithjason.dev, uh, Twitch streams, a lot of um, learning content. He worked for IBM. He was a uh, developer advocate for Gatsby. Now he works as, as a dev advocate for Netlify, uh, doing all the things. And he's just a, a great guy. So we had a blast talking to him, and you're going to love the show. Uh, if you want to support us, go to our website at techjar.dev, sign up for the newsletter, uh, click support, um, join our Patreon, buy some swag, all that good stuff, and tweet us at TechJR Podcast, leave a review on iTunes, and tell all your friends, because that would be awesome. All right, on with the show. Welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Warwick Jr., full stack <laughs> JavaScript developer. I have with me Eddie. Yeah, I'm Eddie, uh, front-end developer. And today we have a special guest. We've got Jason Langstorff. Hopefully I said that right. You uh, did. With, uh, with Netlify and of Learn with Jason and a lot of other awesome things. So, Jason, if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jason. I uh, build stuff on the internet and try to learn stuff as, as the primary source of putting food on the table. Um, <laughs> been doing that for a long time and I'm and, uh, really happy to be here. Yeah, thank thank cool. you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so there's there's so much stuff that I want to ask you about. Um, you know, being a, a developer advocate and uh, doing the streaming and, and all that stuff. But uh, I have to ask straight off um, on your about page on your your blog and your website, uh, mm-hmm. you've got a picture of yourself and it looks like middle school or maybe high school. Um, high school. With the, the frosted hair and throwing the <laughs> horns and the vest. And I feel like I grew up with this kid. <laughs> so I want to hear about about uh, about this kid that became Jason Langstorff. Because there's you, you write a lot about personal development, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you kind of tell me about like where that comes from just for a little bit? Sure. So I, um, I grew up in Montana and my family is pretty comfortably middle class. So I didn't have a lot of problems, which meant that I had to create my own problems. <laughs> and so I did that by, you know, I got all the the piercings and I wore the the silly outfits and I would get the pants with the chains on them and the, the <laughs> metal t-shirt that freaked out people's parents. And uh, I just was like a grumpy little kid. And so I spent, <laughs> I spent a lot of time pretending that I was somehow being victimized by, you know, the man or society or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, and over time I was fortunate enough to have like mature people who stuck by me and kept pointing out the things that I was doing that were mostly self-inflicted. And that really helped me kind of expand into a, a more well-adjusted adult where I, I realized that like the vast majority of my problems are things that I was opting into, or they weren't problems at all. They were things that I was kind of letting get in my way. But if you zoom out a little bit and get pers- get perspective, it was it was less that it was a problem and more it was just like I was looking at something one way. But if I would like take a half step back and move to the right, it wouldn't have been a problem in the first place. Um, so that's, you know, that that was uh, my own development was just largely based in me being silly and having to overcome the fact that, you know, I 
I could live a life where I was the victim and everything was somebody else's problem. But, but ultimately, especially coming from a background like mine, you know, I, I am the only source of problems that I have. So hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Um, like I said, I, I feel like I grew up with that kid, uh, that, that's in that picture. Um, I, I played music as a kid. I still do. I always dreamed about being in a band and, you know, playing shows and whatnot. Um, I'm sure you can attest that that's, you know, much more of a pipe dream than you, you realize as a, as a little kid. Um, but yeah, I mean, then you, I, no, go on. Well, what, what I would say is like, so the band that I was in was not a particularly good band. Um, but we, <laughs> we kept, we kept showing up and we played a ton of shows and, and, um, the way that that band actually ended was we, we were in talks with record labels and, we realized that we didn't want to be that band. Um, we, you know, we felt like we were playing trendy music that, that we didn't really like. And like our, our fan base was getting younger and younger and we didn't particularly like each other anymore. Um, Mm. and then most importantly, we realized that like a record deal is more like a loan than it is like a, you know, like coming into cash. And so what I would say is like, it's not necessarily a pipe dream, to do music as a, as a profession, but it is a lot more work than you might expect. Um, and it's just a whole lot of slogging and doing it every single day. I I would say it's probably a very good analogy for, um, the tech industry too. It's, you know, at first it's just showing up and doing it and nobody's really paying attention and it feels really hard and you know it you're not just like sitting down and playing music and everybody cheers it's it's very much <laughs> like you got to show up and get in that bar where nobody at all cares about what you're doing and you play <laughs> that show anyways and you know you get the yeah. video of it you can put online and hopefully maybe like three people like it you know that kind of thing um <laughs> but that it, it if you keep doing it if you keep showing up eventually those one or two people that like each video they they snowball into an actual fan base or followers or, or whatever you want to call it. And and that makes it sustainable. It's, just, you know, you got to do the work. You got to keep showing up. Yeah, definitely. Maybe, uh, maybe a pipe dream is the wrong word, but I think the, the dream itself is very different from the reality. hundred um, <laughs> percent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, um, through that experience, uh, obviously we were both, Actually, Eddie also is a musician, so we could talk about that all night. But yeah. um, I played shows in front of like three people. Nice, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I played with a country band that played for like four people or something. So yeah. Um, but yeah, through that experience, you uh, you kind of had some odd jobs. You learned a lot of um, like management skills, and then mm. some way somehow that led to development, and then like working at IBM. So so how did that happen? So. The thing about running, like being in a band is if you're not a good band, you don't have any money. And if you don't have any money, the band still needs to operate. Like being in a touring band, you have to have tour posters. You have to have merchandise. Like the vast majority of the way that you pay for your your existence as a band is through merchandise sales because venues don't pay. You'll maybe yeah. get uh, like gas money from a, a venue if you're lucky. So you needed to have merchandise to sell. You needed to get kids to show up to your shows and and to get kids to show up to your shows you needed kids in the cities you were going to to be willing to go out and promote you 
So that meant you had to meet people and get them excited about your band from far away. So that kind of gets into social media management, marketing, all these sorts of things. Um, so without meaning to, I accidentally learned all these skills. I was, I was doing merch design. I was doing poster design, getting on the, the MySpace page and going and finding people who lived in the cities, trying to find the ones who were well-connected, trying to get them into our band so they, we could mail them a, uh, an envelope full of posters and see if they'd go hang those up around for us. Um, so there was all this kind of like business management stuff. You got to negotiate with the venue to make sure they actually give you the gas money. You got to, you got to be willing to have those difficult conversations like, Hey, look, you're either giving us a hundred dollars to get to Toledo or like we live with you now. Um, those, <laughs> those sorts of conversations are really, really hard to, to have at first, but as you get more comfortable with them. And so when the band broke up, what I realized was I had accidentally built a whole different skill set, um, including web design. Cause I started customizing the myspace page and then i wanted to do a tour blog and so i figured out how to build that and then i wanted to play our music but i needed to protect it so i was learning like action script and flash and, and stuff like that so there was all these uh these little rabbit holes to go down and each one of them it turned out with the exception of playing music was relevant to another area of my professional life so um i was lucky enough that that in building this band and doing this, this, you know, wannabe star thing, I was able to put together a, a list of other skills that when I started going a different direction, I could kind of snowball into not starting from scratch. You know, there's a huge amount of overlap between band promotion and digital agency. Awesome. Um, I have to lean a little bit into the vacuum cleaner sales position. Was that like door to door <laughs> or cause I didn't even think that existed anymore. So it straight up does exist and it's awful. Uh, I was a door to door salesman for Kirby oh, wow. vacuums and Holy smokes. it's like, it's the, the saddest job I've ever had. So I would get <laughs> up in the morning and I would go to the, the Kirby like warehouse and the small group of us, the turnover was like 400%. They would, people wouldn't even get through training wow. before they'd quit. So we'd all go there and it would be mostly a new group of faces. And we'd crowd into a minivan and then drive out into a neighborhood. And like whoever the minivan driver was would strategically choose like who went to which neighborhood. And then you would go into these people's houses and do these like scare tactics of you'd pour like salt into their carpet and then vacuum it up with their vacuum and then get the Kirby <laughs> vacuum. And like there was more salt in the the filter after their vacuum had done it. But the secret was the salt never went away. If you went over another spot with a different vacuum after the Kirby vacuum, there's still salt. So we were just doing horrible stuff like that, like pouring salt into people's carpet. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> we get like black, uh, black filter things. That, so you could see what came out of your carpet. And then we'd go like vacuum people's beds to be like, look, you're gross. You need a better vacuum. Um, <laughs> wow. it was like, it was really psychologically abusive stuff. And, and wow. so it, it taught me several things. First, it taught me to be really okay with getting rejected because like people would slam doors in your face. They would, they'd get really mean, curse you out. I'm sure. Uh, but, but it also taught me like what I never wanted to do. I never wanted to do high pressure sales. I never wanted to be somebody who was like tricking people into doing things. Um, so it, you know, it helped me build resilience, but it also helped me set up my moral guidelines. Cause you know, that was a job I took out of desperation. I was like completely unemployable. I, I was the kind of person who would like have a job for three weeks and then quit and go on tour again. 
And so I came back from the tour. My employment history was like 15 jobs in two years. Nobody wanted me. So I, I like, that was the job that was available. Right? Um, so yeah, it's a, it was not a great experience. I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone who's, who's uh, considering vacuum salesmanship. I, I think that's maybe not the way to go. Yeah. Like I said, I don't even, I find it hard to believe that that's still a thing. Uh, just with, you know, like, uh, e-commerce taking the world by storm and yeah. you know retail locations shutting down uh well th- you know, this was this was 15 years ago so i'm not sure if it's still happening okay, okay. I, even uh, so like you know they wrote death of a salesman how many years ago like, yeah yeah multiple decades so <laughs> i was just gonna say i also sold vacuums but it was at best buy <laughs> yeah uh, what yeah hold on was there like a vacuum section or were they, you just in the appliances? It was the or? appliance section, but they would always stick me in the vacuum section. Wow. And what, I worked there. Was for that like, like was two, that like commentary? They were like, oh yeah, put it in vacuums because he sucks. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like, yeah, man, I kind of feel like that's the retail equivalent of right field or something. Yeah, that's kind of what happened. I sold a lot of vacuums though. Um, and then Wait, I ended really? up quitting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is along with fiction. the like extended warranties and everything um brutal yeah i, I after two months i quit i hated it i yeah, yeah I, I, I had a stint at target it was kind of the same thing like really just slow and and kind of like soul crushing work where it was like no matter what you did it was never good enough and oh it was rough yeah yeah for definitely. me it was mostly the manager that would, would like torture me but yeah oh jeez. Yeah. I think that's that's probably a lot of people's experience with uh those kind of retail and fast food jobs where it's you know they just kind of promote the person that stuck around longest. <laughs> so Basically, yeah. That's that's the person over you. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I I think it's probably true everywhere like, you know, I there's a there's a quote that I love which is that that like 75% of success is just showing up. Um yeah. and I I yeah. found that to be true in literally every field. Uh also uh falling up is a, is another kind of process that happens where they uh you know somebody that's incompetent in the role and we're like well we can't fire them so i guess we'll promote them you know so stuff like that happens maybe not in retail but i've certainly read about it and it's kind of blown my mind uh i i've been fortunate enough not to work at companies like that but yeah that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh i think um my my new metric for life is kind of like if i'm not hawking extended warranties for something like i'm doing well you know what i mean like setting the expectation so as long as you're above that like life is good right yeah i I think if you're in any situation where you can be like doing something that you believe in um because that was what i always struggled with right was like anytime i take any job i was working on a working to either sell a product or prepare a product that i just didn't care about you know i'd be like making pizzas for somebody or i'd be like stocking shelves at target or whatever. And it's just really, really hard to be emotionally invested in something like that. And I'm the kind of person who I just, I need to have a reason why. And, uh, I just, I don't have a reason why if I'm working at Wendy's, uh, these are all jobs I've actually had, by the way. Yeah. I I love talking about this because I think a lot of people look at you and they go like, wow, look at this guy works for Gatsby. He works for Netlify. worked for IBM. Like, what a 10 X rock star, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, you know, you put your pants on the same way as everybody else and you grew up in America and worked these jobs just like we did. So, um, you, you've got that perspective just the same as everybody else. And if you can do it like other people can do it, right. 
That's a that's the hope. I mean, I, you know, I I do keep in mind that like I I had a really stable household. I had parents who were doing well, so like I had some some support that's not available to everybody. Um, and that allowed me to do things like flail around as a rock star for, for a year or I guess two years, uh, living in a van with my buddies trying to play shows. Like I wasn't making any money and I wasn't like getting big influxes of cash from my parents or anything. But like when I came back, I had a place to go. Like my parents let me sleep in their basement again. Um, so there, there were some advantages in that shape, but you know, I think we, we all have some advantages. I think I had more than, more than many and that allowed me to kind of struggle to where I've gotten today. Um, but you know, it's the, it's the same process. You, you start with no skills and you just start building the snowball. You start the boulder rolling and, and everything that you learn gives you one more tool, one more thing that you can do to get a little bit further and a little bit, uh, have a little more impact. So it's just a matter of sticking to it and continuing to do that work and, and trying to find where you do have those advantages and opportunities and making sure you take advantage of them. You know, if, if someone's going to give you a leg up, if, if you've been lucky enough to be born in a situation where you've got that, that safety net, or you've got that extra boost or that intro through your parents network, like, you know, take it. That's it's the, you know, it would be worse, I think, to squander that because somebody who doesn't have that would, would potentially, it would change their life. Right. So, you know, we, it, we almost owe it to take advantage of everything that we've been given to, you know, do the, live the best possible life we can given the opportunities that were are in front of us. Yeah. I think that's, that's a good lesson to, to take away from all that. Yeah. Um, going from, uh, from all the, um, the jobs that you hated, uh, I know that you, you started, um, a web agency, right. And mm-hmm. then, from there kind of built up your skills, you know, did the work. Uh, but then how did you transition to working for IBM? So that one is, it's kind of an interesting story because I, so I had the agency and then the agency got to be way too stressful. So I, I kind of backed myself out of it, found a way to sell it and, and got out, did some consulting stuff. And while I was doing consulting, I was also doing a lot of speaking. So the, the way that I would get clients for the agency is I would go to conferences and I would speak, I would hang out and kind of just <clears throat> network with people, talk to them, offer as much help as I could without actually opening a computer, you know, lots of discussion and, and kind of idea stuff. And I do all that for free, knowing that eventually they would know somebody who needed help or whatever, and then I'd get referred. And, and that worked really, really well for me. I, my agency was super busy by the time I left. But when I started um, getting into this consulting stuff, that contract was running thin. And so I looked back through all the people that I knew and sent a couple emails. And a a friend of mine had moved from, uh, you know, he was three companies down the line from when I knew him. And he was working as a development manager at, at IBM. His name's Robin Cannon. And he, I just reached out to him. I said, hey, do you know of anybody who's hiring for what I do? because my contract's rolling up and I'm, I'm looking for a new contract. And I expected him to say, yeah, my friend at this startup is like looking for someone to do a few weeks. And what he said was, well, we need a senior front end developer. Do you want to work at IBM? And my first response was absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I, I kind of, I just had it in my head that like, I never wanted to work at a big company like that. I'm not good at, at bureaucracy or slow moving anything. So I was kind of like, uh, I don't think so. Like, well, I don't know. Tell me about it. What would I be doing? And so he talked to me about the process and what the team was doing. And he was part of this, uh, this group called IBM design and, and 
really it was like Robin was the person who got me to do it because he is the kind of person who just builds good teams. He, he treats his people well and, and gives them a lot of like autonomy and control over their own destiny. So I agreed to go to IBM on the condition that he was my manager. Um, and so they were like, well, what about this team? I was like, absolutely not. I'm, I will be on Robin's team or no one's team. Like that's my conditions for joining. Um, and I had nothing to lose. Like I didn't want the job. Like originally I didn't want that job. I wanted to do more contract work. And so I just found myself in this really, really strong bargaining position that I never thought I'd be in. Turns out it worked out. I got in, got this job and, um, was able to, you know, because I had people clearing the way and giving me a lot of opportunities, I was able to make a pretty big impact right out, out of the gate. Uh, introduced like GraphQL at IBM on the the IBM cloud product and was able to roll out a lot of front end performance gains. And, and that put me into a kind of front end architect role that, uh, that carried me all the way through to the next gig at Gatsby. And it's, you know, again, it's just that, like that snowball, you, you meet somebody at a conference and you're, you know, nice to them, you're friends with them. You keep in touch over the course of years. Like Robin and I went to the same conference for like four years running and we would only hang out for four days a year at this one conference but that, you know, that was enough. That was enough to get the referral, to, to get the, the intro, to, to get into the, the hiring bucket. And I think that's, you know, I, 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 it's hard for me to overstate how valuable conferences have been in helping me build my career. What's, uh, what got you into doing conferences in the first place? Was it originally a vehicle to, to get uh, clients for your, your agency or was it something else? It, yeah, it was originally a, like a marketing thing because I didn't actually go to tech conferences at first. I went to fitness conferences because I used to, my agency that I had specialized in building fitness websites. So we, we would work with personal trainers, with small gyms, things like that. And we would build these, these websites. So my friends were in the fitness industry and they would teach other fitness professionals how to build better businesses. And I'd built their websites. So I just tag along with them to these conferences and talk to the people who were trying to learn because I kind of assumed like if people are willing to pay to go to a conference because they want to learn from people who are building these businesses, they're probably going to take their advice. And if I'm the person building the websites for the people they're taking advice from, I can probably make some sales that way. So I would show up and I would talk to them and offer advice. Um, and then later I realized that like, if I wanted to do something more than fitness, I should probably go to different types of conferences. And I was really fortunate that I had uh, written a couple articles just as I was learning things. Like I put something up on CSS tricks and I had some stuff on smashing magazine and, um, that gave me this foot in to hit up. Like I, the first one that I got was future insights live. And it was, um, it's a conference that used to be called the future of web design. And, um, this, uh, this woman named Louise Morgan just took a shot on me. She was like, oh, you got no speaking experience, but I like this article. Do you want to come be a speaker? So they put me up on the stage and that kicked off this other snowball where, because I had that speaking experience, I was able to, to get introduced to other people who were at other conferences and that got more speaking experience. And then, you know, that all turned into a whole other, a whole other beast, which is, you know, today, like a huge amount of what I do is going around to different conferences and giving, giving talks and workshops and, um, again, that's all because like somebody decided to take a shot on me. So it kind of sounds like that started as you, know, you learned something and you're like, well, I'll write a blog post about it. And mm -hmm. then it kind of built up from there into, well, I guess I'll give a talk. And mm -hmm. then, you know, from there, oh, well, they want me to give other talks. And then, you know, before you know it, you're streaming to Twitch and working with you know, Sarah, <laughs> Sarah Drasner and all these people and, yeah. uh, 
all over YouTube and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it, I feel like a lot of times when someone becomes visible in the community, it feels very sudden. And, you know, if you if you look at some of the people who have really risen to prominence, um, you'd be like, wow, where did uh, like Sean Wang Swix is a, a good example. Like it was like I'd never heard of Swix and then he was everywhere. But that's not actually what happened. He had done a ton of work before that and he was putting in the work. He was reading the articles. He was building the projects. And what I saw was the culmination of all that work where he became visible. And the same thing happened for Sarah. Sarah was doing this stuff for years. And then all of that work like hit a critical point where everyone started to notice. And she became, you know, she was always a superstar, but then everyone knew that she was a superstar. Um, and, and I think that that's how it goes for a lot of people where you, they've been doing the work. They've been around forever um, and they put in that work for years and then they they cross a threshold where the community like a, a critical number of people in the community notice and that's when they suddenly like appear which feels like a very sudden thing to anybody who hasn't been watching but like you know to the person who's been doing it they're like god finally i've been doing this for years <laughs> someone's finally paying attention <laughs> did you have that moment or did it uh, just kind of I, gradually build up for you it's really weird for me because it doesn't feel like it's like, I don't know, maybe this is how it feels for everybody, but like, to me, it doesn't feel like I'm anybody, anybody cares about. Um, like, you know, I, I, I know that a lot of people follow me on Twitter and, and, you know, I've got my, my internet TV show or whatever, but like, it still feels like a small thing that I do with people that I, I see the same people in the stream all the time. And it feels like a small community. Uh, and I interact with a pretty small group of people on Twitter, despite the fact that, you know, what it's like 18,000 or whatever people follow me, um, that, feels I don't know like it, it I guess if I look at the raw numbers I'm like oh wow this it is kind of happening but if I if I look at what my day-to-day -day looks like I still just kind of feel like a, a like a person building some stuff on the internet talking to my friends <laughs> and so it doesn't you know I I so to answer your question like as concisely as possible I don't feel like anything has changed um I guess more people like my tweets so that's good <laughs> <laughs> So you don't feel like you've arrived or anything like that. Like, I, I don't oh, know. The angels sang and you were there, you know, it's, I mean, so what it feels like is it feels like doors are open, right? If I email somebody, the chances of me getting a response are very high and that feels really good. Like it, it, that, I, that part feels like arriving because you know, it's, it's never fun when you're out there just kind of shooting your shot. And the, the chance that somebody is going to respond is, is super low. So you're like playing a numbers game. Well, if I send a hundred emails, maybe one person will respond to me. Um, but what I found is that like, I like to respond to emails. Uh oh, okay. Let me take that back because I don't want to get a billion emails, <laughs> but like, I, I like to help people, right? Like I, I like to, see what people are working on and, and try to help them get over that next hump. You know, that's why I do the stuff that I do. And so, and I think that a lot of people who are visible like that, you know, they're the same way they, they want to help. So part of it maybe is just like asking. Um, cause the reason, I think the reason that people respond to my emails now is because like I was sending them when they wouldn't respond. I, I remember the way that I got my first article was I just cold emailed Chris Coyer one day and I was like, Hey, can I write something for CSS tricks? And he oh, just that's emailed how that me. Works. <laughs> yeah, he just emailed me back and he was like, uh, I don't pay for articles. I was like, yeah, I know. I just want to write something. And he was like, cool. Yeah, go ahead. 
And so I submitted an article and he gave me some feedback and I fixed it and, and then he published it. And then that ended up being this like kind of watershed moment for my career because that led to, uh, that, I mean, that article hit the front page of dig and stuff back when dig mattered. And, uh, that led to like a, an offer for a book deal and, and all this other stuff. So it, it really was like a, you know, that opened a door, which opened another door, which opened another door. Um, and I think that I got that opportunity because I, sent an email and I was like, Hey, I'd like to help. How can I be useful? And I was, you know, it was the right place, right time for Chris. So he was willing to take a shot. Um, but like all these big publications smashing and uh, a list apart and CSS tricks, they've all got submission processes. So even if you've never submitted before, like you can totally write for those publications, you know, you, you got to do the work, you got to write a high quality piece, but like if, if you do the work and you write a high quality piece, it'll get published. You can be an author on one of these sites and and that opens the next door and you know every one of those things that you do just opens the door after that and the door after that until you're doing all the same stuff as the people that you might be looking at twitter going wow how'd they get there they, they just <laughs> opened one door at a time is how they got there yeah. so would you recommend that people kind of aspire to blogging enough so that they get good enough to get something into css tricks or should they work um, on their own blogs or what do you think I think people should, they should aspire to do anything that's repeatable for them. So what I mean by that is like, if I like, so I wrote an article for a list apart recently and it was so much fun. I got to work with some of my web heroes, but I haven't done anything since, right? It wasn't repeatable for me because it was so much work and it was such a, like an emotionally challenging experience to put that level of effort into an article. Like that could not be my job. I could not be a regular, a list apart article author or, or even just write pieces of that caliber all the time. Cause it just takes so much out of me. Um, but on the other hand, because I'm wired the way I'm wired, it's really easy for me to get on and stream. And I, I think that for me, that's true for other people. It might be the opposite. Maybe they're like super drained by being on calls and talking to people and live streaming, but they'd like get a ton of energy from creating articles. Um, and we see that there are people who are really prolific with the way that they write and the way that they create, but we never see them speak or, or vice versa. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of a matter of looking at the stuff that you are excited by the things that you want to do that are repeatable for you. And just doing that thing, steering into the stuff that you know you can be consistent with. And what I would what I would encourage is experimentation. Like try everything. Try Twitter. Try, you know, TikTok if you want. Like I don't, whatever, make whatever you want. But just create different types of content and find the ones that after you write them, you find yourself like with that like excited, like tons of energy. You want to bounce up and down and like, yeah, I can't believe I did that. That's so much fun. Um, cause when you do that, that's the type of feeling that you're going to, you'll do that again and again and again. And that's how you build that, that consistency and that, that chain that helps unlock those doors and, and get you to the next thing and the thing after that. Cool. Yeah. That's, that's uh that's good advice because I think a lot of people force themselves to do stuff like, Oh, Jason streams. I, I, I need to have my own yeah. stream. Or like Lee and Eddie have a podcast. Uh, do we need our own podcast to be successful? <laughs> And I, I don't really feel like that's a fair way to look at it or a fair expectation to have for yourself because just because we do it doesn't mean like you have to do it. 
You know, mm-hmm. I write a blog. Eddie doesn't have a blog right now, but that doesn't mean Eddie has to write a blog. You know, yeah. maybe his thing is tutorials, or maybe he likes, you know, doing demo apps or speaking conference. It's not speaking conferences, <laughs> but um, you know, whatever that thing is. Um, yeah, it, it makes sense to like kind of try things out and then the, do the thing you like. Like, it seems so obvious when you say it. Yeah. Well, um, and, and, but there's a, an important distinction in there, which is that you like, you, you have to push yourself beyond what's comfortable and like try things, even if they're not fun the first time. Um, I, I have a, like, I, everybody says like, Oh, I'll try anything once. I kind of feel like I'll try anything twice. Cause I feel like the first time is rough, right? The first time you, you do anything, it's, you're learning how it works. You're, you're like frustrated by the fact that all the processes are new. And so it might not give you a clear signal of whether or not that thing was a good thing for you. Um, whereas like, cause I remember I played, uh, like a, a, like a board game, for example. I remember the first time that I played, uh, this board game, uh, which one was it? It was like Settlers of Catan or something. I remember being just so like frustrated and overwhelmed by the game because I didn't know any of the rules and like everybody else did and they were kicking my ass and I felt like silly because I'm, I like can't get this thing. But then the next time I played the game, because I already kind of knew how things were going to go and my expectations were set properly, it was more fun to play. And I feel like that's been true for me with, with several things that I've done. Like with the, the podcasting thing, my first couple of podcasts were really hard because I didn't have experience like talking to people and, and being put on the spot with questions. And so that was, it was really stressful for me. I'd really drained afterward. But now that I've done it a few times, it's actually really fun for me. I love having these conversations and, and being able to just kind of banter about whatever's on your mind because I don't know what's going on <laughs> coming into this call, right? Like it's all a surprise <laughs> for me. Um, but it's really fun. Like now I've, I've learned that I really like it. And it was the same with live streaming as well. Like it was hard for me the first couple of times because I was figuring out tech issues and things would go wrong and it was super frustrating. But now that I've got the tech stuff worked out, I just get to turn it on and go. And that's really fun for me. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear that you, uh, you like the, uh, the podcast aspect. You're, you're welcome to come back and we'll be that vehicle for you. (laughs) uh, Have more banter. Um, uh, going back to uh, to kind of the the speaking and the agency uh, time of your life, um, I'm kind of curious, like when you became this developer advocate person, like what was the the process that led to that? I, I saw that you had done like some process work with IBM. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have a lot of blog articles that kind of focus on that. Uh, I really like the the Dirt Floor article, uh, for example. Thank you. So, how did that become this? Uh, I don't know. How did that snowball into becoming a developer advocate? Very much by mistake. Um, <laughs> I So when I was at IBM, I was trying to convince people that the, the architecture that I was pushing for was going to save everyone time and make them all more effective. And it, specifically, I was pushing toward uh, what we call the Jamstack now. And my reasoning was that like we had all these different teams and, and they had a lot of really tight coupling and there was, you know, all this work that needed to be done. And what I found myself doing was running these like internal meetups. So, uh, there's a a woman named Kelly Churchill and another woman named Jessica Tremblay at IBM who run this amazing program called Feducation. It's uh, for front end developers at IBM are called feds. And so they call it Feducation. You go in, you have uh, like breakfast, they bring in breakfast tacos and you do a, a learning session. So somebody does a presentation. And so 
in an effort to try to teach other developers at IBM about the benefits of the stuff that my team was trying to to Im implement, I started giving presentations internally on how to do this stuff. And what I found was I was basically becoming an internal advocate for a certain approach to, to development. Um, then once we had done the, um, the GraphQL stuff inside of IBM, I found myself wanting to teach external teams how they could simplify their stack as well. And so I submitted some, uh, some talks to like the GraphQL summit and, and other, other places to educate other teams on the way that IBM was using this stuff internally so that they could potentially take those benefits and roll them into their own teams. Um, when I went to Gatsby, I got hired as an engineer. Um, that was actually my, my intended role was to go in and, and work on Gatsby's product offerings. But once I got there, because I was like the fifth or sixth employee at the company, I found that there were just like we, you know, when you get into a startup that early, like everybody has to wear 15 hats. And so I used to joke that I was human duct tape, right? Because <laughs> I'd, owned, I'd owned an agency. I'd worked at the big corporate company. I'd like led teams. I'd been in sales. I'd been in marketing. And so I, I just found myself trying to, to like fill in wherever it was useful. Um, and the, the point where we started to see the biggest amount of impact from me was when we started looking at stuff like the, the swag store. And so I built out a swag store, but in building out that swag store, I was working with Marissa Morby and she and I came up with this way to kind of like reward the community for participating and like send out these thank yous and, and free swag and, um, invite people to the repo and all this stuff that was kind of like, all right, we're, no, what we're doing here is we're not like building tools, we're building community. So what else, you know, it, I started to realize that there's this, um, this benefit in, in doing that, that goes beyond like, Hey, we're trying to sell stuff. It was more like, Hey, we can like, we can build a really strong community. This can go beyond being a product and start being like a thing, like a, like a group of people who are legitimately trying to like work together to make the web a better place. And so when I saw that opportunity, I was like, all right, I'm going to steer into this and see what happens. And so it was, you know, that all just started leading to different projects that were all centered around this idea of let's make the, the community as healthy as we can. Um, and so, you know, obviously when you start thinking about the, or maybe not, obviously when you start thinking about the community health, it starts to bring in things like, okay, well now we, if we want a healthy community, that means that it needs to be like transparent and welcoming. And we need to make sure that everyone feels welcome, not just the people who are by default welcome in tech. And so now we've got to start thinking about, you know, how do we make sure that we're actually being inclusive? How are we inviting people? And once we've invited someone, how do we make sure when they show up, they actually feel like they, they belong, like they see themselves here. So then there was all this other stuff that started happening and just more or less by, you know, just a, a series of me wandering through doors, I landed it at being the, the head of developer relations or, or whatever we want to call it at Gatsby. Um, and then, you know, when I went to Netlify, it was a, a more, a much more explicit thing. Sarah uh, reached out to me and was like, Hey, do you want to do what you did at Gatsby? But do you want to do it at Netlify? And so now, now it's like explicit. I was, I was hired into being a, like a developer advocate or what we call it, uh, Netlify, a developer experience engineer, which is kind of like a hybrid dev advocacy engineering role because, you know, we want people to still be engineers, not just talking about code. Cool. Wow, I actually didn't realize that you had been with Gatsby for so long and that you had kind of 
created a lot of the really like my favorite stuff about Gatsby, which is like the community aspect of it. Um, sending out socks and stuff for pull requests. Uh, that, that is like so dumb, but so amazing at the same time. Like yeah. when you say it, people are like, I, who wants socks? But, but really like that's, it's so hard to get people to contribute to open source and to feel like they can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, even just, the promise of socks or whatever like yeah i did that pull request and i got these socks like yeah and it, and like you get to be part of a club right you're you're included in something that happened um and and that was really important to us and so you know i i want to be clear that like i'm not taking credit for the gatsby community it was already amazing before i showed up um what i tried to do was make sure that there were like guardrails and processes in place to make sure that it stayed healthy and kept growing yeah, it's uh, I don't know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but it's, it's very different from a lot of other projects. Um, the the community aspect of it, um, you know, you go on to let's say just documentation for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked to Amberly Romo and mm-hmm. um, we talked to Kyle Gill, and I, I just don't know of a lot of companies that are kind of so focused on that aspect of it. Like we want to be able to, you know, our own documentation can ramp people up to, you know, contributing a pull request and using the product and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of, you know, projects are the documentation is an afterthought or, you know, we'll, we'll open source it, but if people want to contribute, they can, but if they don't, whatever, you know, so the, the attitude is so different and that's so, I don't know, welcoming, inspiring. I, I don't even know how to describe it for, for Gatsby's community. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, it's such a, it's such an interesting thing to see too, that, that like, you know, you've got Marcy Sutton, who is this like brilliant community member and like advocate for, uh, accessibility and for just learning in general. And then you've got these incredible people like Amberly and Kyle who are like relatively new to the industry, but just like unbelievably sharp and they're able to dedicate their full energy to making it easier for people to get involved in a project and i just it's it's hard for me to overstate how incredible that was or that it is i mean i it it, how incredible it was for me specifically like while i was there to be able to go to a team and say hey what are you working on and the thing that they would always say was well we're working on this workflow to make sure that somebody who's coming from this like this style of programming is going to feel like they know exactly where to go when they start using Gatsby it's like oh my god that is so amazing to that you're even thinking outside of the product you know I feel like a lot of times projects uh developers in, in particular have a tendency to think just about the tech right and there are these like second third and fourth order effects and and uh, when you look at your code, it's not just the code, it's the people who use the code. And then there's the context that those people live in and the experience that they're bringing with them. And if, if you are thinking about that and trying to design your product to like meet people where they are and guide them to where they'll be in their best possible position to succeed, it just makes a whole world of difference. And, and like, that's not a, it's not a difficult thing to see but it's a difficult thing to do well because it requires so much empathy and so much um like research and and thinking from other people's perspectives and being willing to say like you know that's not the way i do it but i understand why you want to do it that way and so i want to make sure that there's a path for you um 
and it, you know, I, I just think a lot of times we're like, well, no, I'm super smart. And so everyone will come around to my way or, or they won't. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean that like, that can be fine. I think we see that with certain projects that are really successful, but it, it, and it doesn't necessarily prevent them from being successful. But I, I think that that's to, to me, that's the difference between something like Gatsby that has this incredible supportive community and something that, that is successful, but doesn't necessarily have a community around it. Yeah, I can, I can think of a few technologies off the top of my head um, that are kind of in that direction of this is the way that we designed it. And like, that's the way it is. And if you don't like it, like tough, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, if I wanted to name drop one, I'd say Angular. <laughs> it's so that they're like, we like RxJS, you're going to use RxJS. Whether or not that makes sense to you, like we think it's the best solution. So that's what we're going to build into our framework, you know, stuff like that. Um, whereas, you know, React and Gatsby and, and that sort of thing is very modular and can be built with TypeScript or built without TypeScript or, you know, you want to use CSS modules or you want to use CSS and JS or, or whatever it is it's kind of all accommodating to that. And then the docs will walk you through all those different directions, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, it becomes a huge, like a huge undertaking because you're, you're no longer just documenting your project. You're documenting the internet, which is right. Like yeah. <laughs> it's a never ending problem. And, and you're always going to find places where you've come up short and you're always going to be favoring the technology that you know best. Um, but you know, you do the best you can and you, you try, you try to, cover the bases where you can you try to empower people to make those changes and and that's again like that's why you need that healthy community you need people who are are invested in the success of the product and and in the success of the community and who are willing to put their time in and you know because like open source is a volunteer effort and if you're if you really want to see a project succeed you're willing to put in that effort if, if you're just like ah it's a thing i use for work it's not fun to put that effort in. You don't like, you know, you have no incentive to do so. So it's really, really important that that project feels like something that you can like, that like, values you so that you can in turn value the the community that, that runs that project. Yeah, definitely. Um, talking about, uh, since you mentioned it, uh, Netlify, what kind of, um, what kind of stuff are you doing over at Netlify? Like what is the, like, what are you working on over there? So I'm on the the developer experience team, which is, it's, it's a really interesting approach. Um, so Sarah Drasner put this together and I, I think it's really, really smart. And the idea is that like in any organization, if you talk about what developer advocacy is, you'll hear different things. Like sometimes it's part of the marketing department and it's a way to get leads for the product or it's a way to do, um, you know, like outreach and, and kind of bring people in to try the, the product. And in other organizations, it's part of engineering and it's a way to get uh, feedback for the engineering teams to improve the products and, and a way to build demos and, and things like that. Um, but in both of those cases, you, f you find this sort of imbalance where the, the dev advocacy team isn't aligned with engineering goals and it isn't aligned with marketing goals. So there's a tendency if they report up to those teams that they get kind of squished in a weird way. Um, so what Sarah did was she, she pulled it out into its own department and it, it like works closely with marketing and it works closely with product and it works closely with engineering to make sure that like everything that gets done rolls up to the same goals like we're all rowing in the same direction but it's it's an explicit acknowledgement that 
what developer experience is, is first and foremost, trying to make sure that the, the product that we're using is really, really, really pleasant to use. And so, um, that's what Netlify has built its reputation on, right? Is this idea of like using Netlify is awesome. That's why I joined the company. It's a really, really pleasant thing to use. So how do we as a team ensure that that continues to be true as Netlify introduces new products, as the landscape gets more uh, crowded, as, you know, other companies are starting to roll out similar offerings, um, if we were just rolling up to marketing, it would be like, hey, here's a new offering. Go make sure everybody knows about it. And if we were just rolling up to engineering, it's like, hey, uh, make sure that that like you're giving us this feedback when people get stuck on this product so we can improve it. Um, but what we're doing instead is we're trying to find out like, okay, so product needs that feedback and marketing needs the the push and the leads. But what we're uniquely good at is like making a community around the, the stacks that we're using. And so we kind of focus on this whole idea of the jam stack. People are building websites in a different way now than they were 10 years ago. So how can we be facilitators for this community and help them understand the landscape and build things better on the jam stack? And hopefully the tools that we've provided are the tools they choose, but we're not going to like cram it down their throats. We're not sales. We're not like, you know, we're not out there to be sleazy and, and like trick people into using our stuff. We're out to say, Hey, look, this is a new paradigm. Like the jam stack is it's the same as what you've done before, but it's different enough that it's worth looking into. Here's what's different. Here's how it all works. And we've got some solutions. Other people have other solutions. You can use whichever ones you want. We hope you choose ours. And in doing that, it it shifts the it shifts the interaction a little bit because we're still building product. Like people on the developer experience team do a, a three month engineering rotation where we actually drop out of the DevX team and into a product team and work on products. That's so that we stay engineers. We remember what it's like to have real world requirements and and like really challenging problems where you have to do things like what would be considered the wrong way to get something done and, and shipped. Um, and then we get to take that back out and we've got empathy for the engineering teams. We know what real world requirements are. We're not standing up on our pedestal and saying like, everybody should do everything just like this, because if you don't, you're idiots, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, we're trying to make sure that, that we are still in touch, that we're still engineers. Uh, but then when we're out there talking to people, we're not like rolling up to a, you must produce this many leads kind of metric, or you must produce this many new sales kind of metric, because that doesn't work for dev advocacy like developers hate being marketed to they hate being sold to they want to be part of a community of people who are trying to strive and learn to be better and that's exactly what we want to do we want to we want to be part of the the force that helps move the industry forward and like netlify is is wise enough to to basically say like yeah you're not there to sell netlify you're there to move the jamstack community forward and Netlify will be a tool that people use to do that. And, you know, we know that the second or third order effect is if someone like Sarah Drasner is out there being Sarah Drasner and like being as helpful as she is, and she's decided to align herself with Netlify, she doesn't have to tell you to use Netlify. You're going to go, oh, well, Sarah works at Netlify and Sarah's awesome. And I, I would trust Sarah. So I'm going to use what she uses right? She never has to say, go use Netlify. You're just going to do it because she's amazing and you want to, you know, you know that you can trust her opinion. And that's kind of what we're aiming for. We don't want to sell. We just want to help people get where they want to go. And hopefully they, they follow our recommendations.
That's really cool. cool. Uh, our yeah, our site is on Netlify, so we're uh, I'm happy with it. Um, <laughs> I like it so far, at least for the the static hosting, it's it's pretty brilliant. Um, are there any um, maybe other services that you would recommend like people check out, especially if they're you know junior developers or new to Jamstack or anything? Um, I think like one of the things that's really fun that is uh, like a good way to play with something slightly more advanced is the the functions feature so you can basically stand up an api with like five lines of javascript um and you don't have to deploy it you don't have to run a server you just create like a functions folder um and then you can you can like submit forms to it or you can call it from the the url bar and it's really really fun so like i i just did a, a front-end master's course on this where we set up like a contact form so you could send an email from a Jamstack site. So you're not actually deploying a server. You're just able to put this one function together that will take the form input and put it together into an email thing and then send it using a, a software as a service platform. Um, and we put together some other stuff like that too that does like, uh, like we put together a database thing where we did a to-do app that's got a, a database and you can create, read, delete, update, all that stuff. Um, but all without deploying a server. So it's really, really exciting and really, really fun. Um, and like from my, like in my opinion, I've deployed a lot of servers. Um, you know, I, I come from the like more traditionally full stack. You know, I was a PHP developer and a database admin before I was a, a front end developer. And like the experience of standing up an API in PHP is like, is rough. Standing it up in <laughs> like node with express is a little bit better but it's still kind of rough and then you you get through the different uh node frameworks and they get a little bit better but you know that you at the end of the day you're still trying to figure out how do i get this container like what is a container why do i need one where do i put it i got to get this <laughs> app into this thing and then i got to put it on docker and then where where does docker live like what's that so there's all these like layers of abstraction that you have to get through and what's interesting about serverless in general is that serverless is basically said you don't need to worry about those abstractions. They still exist. They're still happening. Like it's still a server. It's still running. It's just on somebody else's computer. Um, but the only thing that you have to think about is that when someone sends a request, you're going to get a request object with whatever they sent you. You can do something with that request and then you can send a response. That's it. You don't have to stand up a server. You don't have to handle the HTTP request. You don't have to set up routing. You don't have to figure out how to deploy the server or how to keep it up or any of that stuff. It just happens. Um, that to me is a really, really powerful shift where front-end developers now have significantly fewer hurdles to get really interactive apps up on the internet. And I think that's, uh, you know, that to me is probably the most exciting thing that's coming with this whole Jamstack thing. Yeah, I personally uh, have gone through a lot of those hoops like, Oh, well now I got to learn about Docker and mm -hmm. okay, now I've got some Docker knowledge and I have to figure out how to run that on AWS. And mm -hmm. so, and then like Lambda itself, you know, I, I guess would be the closest analogy to Netlify functions, but even that's not simple. Like that's got its own workflow to it and its own quirks and kinks and stuff. So, yeah. Um, so like AWS Lambda is like, uh, it, that's like getting the, the build it yourself kind of thing. Like you get it, you get a box of parts and all the parts are there and you can assemble them. And it's not like, really hard but it's hard enough and then when you get into something like serverless serverless is a little more assembled but you still have to like deploy it there's still a few steps there 
And then Netlify is more of like a batteries included, like you, you just ship it and it works. It's, it's, it's very in line with Netlify's idea of like, you should be able to click. I want my site from GitHub to live on the internet. And Netlify is like, cool, done. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's the, it's the one click, like, oh, I want this function to work. Let me put it in a folder. And Netlify is like, cool. I see you put a, a function in a folder. It works now. Yeah, it's awesome. really cool. Is there, um, I think I, I remember reading something about, uh, Netlify had released like a local development version of some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's a CLI. Um, it's still kind of early yeah. days. So if you're, if you're using it for like the, the happy path, like you got a function, you want to see if that function works. It's awesome. Um, you can fall off the happy path a little bit if you start getting into like, well, I'm going to have a function that has my data that's going to feed a, a Gatsby site that's going to build. And then it'll also call functions and like that kind of loop de loop stuff can get a little weird. Like you can do it for sure. But you know, um, it, that's all going to improve a lot in the future. But for now, uh, it's really, really good to start and you can find some edge cases there if you look for them. Cool. And, uh, what is the pricing like for some of those services? Like I guess functions in particular, is there like a free tier or is it yeah. like, pretty close to maybe a little bit more than you'd pay for AWS or how does that work? Um, there's a free tier and it's pretty generous. I, I think in like, unless you're making money off your website, there's a reasonably good chance that you would never pay for it. Okay. Fair cool. enough. <laughs> Sold <Yeah>. right now. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, uh, we're, we're kind of getting a little long, but I, there's a couple more things I wanted to, to get into. Um, first, uh, I had seen that you have, a lot of the talks that you're working on are just like up on GitHub. Mm -hmm. So I dug in a little bit and I saw um, this one talk about getting hired. And so we've got a lot of listeners that are out there like beating the streets, mm. you know, emailing people, pounding on doors yeah. and stuff, trying to get that first shot. And you've got a really interesting talk that it looked like you were working on, on um, working in public. Mm -hmm. So can you maybe outline that a little bit and kind of explain what that means? Yeah. So I think there's, um, I forget who it is right now, but they, they wrote a book called, uh, so good. They can't ignore you. And then Swix has this concept of learn in public. And, um, you just see this, this kind of idea of like being prolific. Um, but being prolific doesn't actually require you to be a particularly like hardworking or special person it, it just requires you to do work and share that work i think the instinct for a lot of people especially when they're early in their career is to say oh well no one cares about this or i need to wait until i'm better to put something like this out in public and it it's something that i've started referring to as headlight vision like as soon as you've learned something it stops feeling important to you so you're only looking kind of ahead and slightly to the left or right of where you are. And you can only see the people who are in that field of vision. But that means that all the people who are like to the left or right of you or behind you who still haven't learned the thing that you know or who are maybe like two days away from learning what you know, that's that could be the thing that pushes them to the next level. Um, so a lot of like what I think makes the big difference between somebody who gets hired quickly and somebody who, who maybe struggles is the, the volume of work that they create. Um, if I am reviewing a resume, if somebody sends me a cover letter and a resume and I can't really find any work, 
if I'm putting that up against somebody who's maybe the same level of experience and education, but who has a ton of work that I can look at and I've got a stack of, you know, 500 resumes to go through, I'm probably going to prioritize the ones that I can look at their work first. So a huge advantage is to just build things. And the, the other thing too, is that building things and putting them out there, it gets you into this habit of shipping and you are just willing to put something up and be okay with it being imperfect and iterate and fix it and clean it up and get feedback and, you know, be willing to put something out there and say, Hey, I built the thing. And and then somebody will say, Oh, it didn't work on my machine. And you're like, Oh, great. You're on Firefox. Let me go troubleshoot that. Like it's, you know, it's not like I'm going to put something out in the world and it's public and it's perfect and it will never change because that's never true. Like every product in the world ships and it's broken. Like every single product out there is broken right now in some way. We don't know what way it is. Most of us won't see it, but it's broken. And what will happen is it ships and then people try it and then they find what's broken and they open a ticket and then the team goes and fixes it. And I, I think that the sooner that we embrace that as as developers and, and just get comfortable with the idea of like shipping imperfect things and saying, here's the thing I made. I hope you like it. Let me know if there's something I can do to make it better. Um, that really shows me if I'm, if I'm screening that you are good at taking criticism, you're, you're not gonna, you know, get a get a task and then hide until you can finish it, which to me is, is really terrifying because if you're stuck and you're afraid to ask, the longer you wait, the harder it is to ask. And the bigger the problem is going to be when you come back and tell me like, I haven't done anything because I didn't know what to do, but I was afraid to ask. And now it's been three months. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, Yikes. And so like, I, I, and I've, I've had conversations with people who have done that. They, they get freelance contracts and they get stuck and they don't ask. And then suddenly they're in this really bad situation where because they didn't ask, it's been too long. And now that it's been too long, they're even more afraid to ask. And it just turns into this really nasty situation. So anyways, that's all to say like for early career folks, the best possible thing you can do if you've got the freedom and the bandwidth to create things and put them out there, do it. Like put your school projects out there, put your personal site on GitHub and just iterate on it in public publish, like write notes as you are learning anything new and publish your notes. Doesn't matter if it's high quality. It doesn't matter if it's perfectly polished. Just create that body of work because that is so much more convincing than, you know, a resume or, or anything else that you can put out there to a team full of people who are going to be screening. Yeah. I've, uh, I've actually seen this work on, you know, like LinkedIn where somebody will post, um, like a demo app or something that they made and get like thousands of likes and comments and stuff. That's just like, great job. Awesome. And I can't help but think like in those thousands of interactions, there's gotta be a couple of people that are like, Hey, do you want a job or are you looking for a contract work or you know, anything like that? So, well, and more importantly, like if, if, you know, if, if we're being honest, the way that people get picked is typically by uh, people we've heard of, we're always more yeah. likely to hire somebody that we know. So if you're on Twitter, sharing your work, that means that you're going to come across my timeline. You're going to come across lots of people's timelines. And then when I see your resume, I'm going to think, oh, hey, haven't I seen a bunch of your work on Twitter? And I'm immediately going to be more tuned in to you because I've heard of you before. And that is completely unfair. And it's a completely like terrible psychological bias. And if you're a junior developer, you should hack the hell out of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, definitely. Um, the The alternative is kind of like, 
even worse, I, I think, than than hacking the you know the social media or whatever, which is just you know make some stuff, make a resume, and just fire it out blindly to you know as many postings as you can find. Mm-hmm. And that's just like such a negative feedback loop of oh well, I I sent out like th- you know thirty applications today, and I heard back from nobody, and yeah. then they just like people get more and more discouraged. Yeah. Well, and whereas it's- when you post stuff on social media, like you know you're getting that feedback of oh, that's great, or you should change this, or, or whatever. And I also think, too, when you're when you're looking at that sort of stuff, that if you drop, like, blanket, like, if you carpet bomb the whole industry with your resume, <laughs> yeah. the, the companies that respond well to a cold resume drop are, like, sometimes it's going to work out well, but a lot of times it's going to be the type of company that's just, like, having a hard time hiring somebody. And so they're just going to pick you up, and then, you know, you may you may have a hard time advancing, it may not be at the level of pay that you that you should be getting. It may not be the kind of place where you're going to get mentorship or guidance. Um, and so, you know, the like absolutely do whatever you need to do to get your first job. The first job is the hardest. Um, once you've been in the industry, getting the second job is significantly easier. And I've ha- I've seen that be true with everybody that I've watched come into the industry. Um, but that being said. The people who I've seen be very targeted about the way that they get in end up at great teams right out of the gate. And the people who I've seen kind of be scared to put themselves out there and just like do the the numbers game with cold resumes, their first job ends up being like more of a, a learning experience than it is a uh, like a good experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I know the the types of places that you're talking about, um, which, which is actually a great transition. Um, you know, going off all this work that you've done and like speaking and blog posts and stuff about processes at companies, I'm really curious to know when you're looking at a prospective company that you want to join, what questions do you have for them about like their teams and their processes and like what kind of, I guess, knowledge could you pass on about stuff to look for when you're applying for jobs? So I feel like I want to qualify this a little bit because I think that these questions are going to evolve as you go into your career. Um, I think that early on the questions that I, that I would want somebody to ask are going to be around what does your career ladder look like? How do you uh, help people advance? What do you do to mentor people? What does your one-on-one process look like? Um, things that are kind of built around, like, is your team set up to help me succeed? As you get more advanced, as you start moving from a um, developer role into more of a lead developer role or uh, in, you know, beyond that, where you start getting toward management or leadership, then the questions get more toward like, who are the people running the company? Do people know what they're working on? Where's the, where's the roadmap? Does everybody know what they're supposed to be doing when you get assigned a task? Do you like feel like you actually own it or do you feel like leadership might change their mind at any given moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, at, at the beginning, like if you're going to be a developer, you want to talk to your, whoever would be your direct manager and try to get a good sense of how they run their team. Make sure it's compatible with the way that you work. Um, figure out how you're going to get feedback, figure out how you're going to like level up and what you're going to like, what level of clarity you're going to have on how you level up. Um, Cause those are the sorts of questions that show me that you are, in it for the long haul. Like if you're just there, like, you know, what's my, what's my PTO look like? Do I get to use react? Like, you know, (laughs) those sorts of questions are like, those are like, yeah, I want you to be excited about the tech, but like, if you're just there because you want to like 
slaying some react and you're not interested in being part of a team or, or kind of advancing that's less exciting to me than somebody who seems to really be ready to not only advocate for themselves but expect their team to be like a critical part of their advancement as a developer so you would expect people to ask these kind of questions and not want them to be afraid to ask that kind of stuff. A hundred percent. Yeah. If you're, if you're not asking me process or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you're not asking me how I run my team, like that's a red flag to me because it, it sounds to me like you either don't know or don't care that you're responsible for your career advancement. Like I'm looking for people who want to grow. I'm, I, I would actually take, like, I actually have a good example of this. I've got, I've got a friend who is, I'm not going to say her name, but she, she's at a company right now and she's like, doing all the right things. She's, she's advocating for herself. She's going out of her way to learn things. She's putting in the extra time. She's using like company free time breaks to like level herself up because the company's not advocating for her. And she's only six months into her career, but I'd probably level her above a junior developer because I see how much work she's putting into herself. And because I see that she's succeeding in this company, despite the fact that nobody's working for her. Like she's, nobody's working to help her succeed and she's still managing to succeed. So if I hear that and then she comes to me and asks me questions about how the team is going to advocate for her, because she's obviously doing that work. She obviously wants to be a developer and wants to be a good developer. She's not just here for a job. She's here to be excellent at something. And if I get that sense, when I talk to somebody, I want them on my team 100%. Um, so that, yeah, I think it's, you being willing to advocate for yourself and you being willing to to ask questions of teams that demand that you will be treated as someone who's going to go somewhere and not as a, a cog in a machine or whatever. Um, if you ask those questions and the, and the company that you're interviewing with is like uncomfortable or put off by that, I actually think that's a good yellow flag for you that like that place is not going to have your best interests at heart. Yeah, I was going to say like, you know, that first job is really tough to get. So um, I would wonder if people would be sheepish, sheepish to ask like about the teamwork and processes and that sort of thing and kind of like talk themselves out of the job if they were like, oh, you don't have a one on one process or you know what I mean? It's kind of well, a, it's a gray area. Yeah. So, I mean? yeah. So here's the thing is like if you're if you're looking for your first job and you like need a job, sometimes you just got to take a job. Like I, I took a job bagging groceries because I needed a vacuum job. Vacuum sales. Yeah, vacuum sales. Like I needed a job <laughs> yeah. and it wasn't the job I wanted. I didn't ask any questions. I was like, when can I start? Because I got to get some food on the table. Um, and that's okay. Like th this is more of a, like when, when you are in a position to ask those questions and maybe what it is, is you take that first job and you hope that that job works out. And if it doesn't, you use the fact that that job is keeping the lights on to go and get an actual interview cycle in where you can advocate for yourself. And like, I, you know, I, I wouldn't advocate doing that if you have any other option, because it's kind of not cool to the company that you're, that you're rolling the dice on. Um, but at the same time, like if it's, if it's a choice between that and like you are going to get evicted, like, yeah, take the job, like take any job, make sure that you got your lights on and that you can, you know, you can do the thing, yeah. but you know, it's, yeah, it's a it's a tough position to be in, I think, for a lot of people because they kind of need that foot in the door, but then they don't want to. I don't know. They don't want to shoot themselves in the foot either, to use a really contrived <laughs> expression. But because uh, <laughs> everybody wants to be on, like you know, they're not getting into to development to go 
you know, make cogs in a factory or something They're, They want to be part of this lifestyle of, you know, enjoying work and working with the team and working on stuff that's meaningful to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would hope that they would ask those kind of questions like, well, you know, what, not, not what's your PTO, but like, what, what do I, what do I do if it gets stuck? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, an, another thing that I think is worth mentioning is like everybody works differently. You know, there, there are people who want to be working in, uh, you know, like for me, I like being in a little bit of chaos. I like not knowing what, what things look like, inventing things from scratch. Um, and that's been fun for me my whole career, even when I didn't know what I was doing. And for other people I know who are ultra experienced, they've been doing this forever. They never want that. They want to be working on a product that's established that they can incrementally improve over time with no surprises and no excitement. And they're not moving teams. They're not looking to become a manager. They just want to be like the most senior dev on their team. And that's it. And there's nothing like the the important thing isn't what kind of dev you are. And there's no like right or wrong way to do it. It's just try to learn what it is that you're comfortable with. Are you the kind of person who wants to be in a, like a stable environment where you, where there's predictability and, and you, you know, what's coming, you know, that you can learn the processes. And, and as long as you know, the rules, you can play the game and win. Um, or are you somebody who wants a little more like excitement? You want novelty, chaos, things could go wrong at any minute. Um, again, you know, that's, it's just a matter of like what your style is and that's going to inform the kind of job you want to go for. Like, and, and, you know, that could be in any, any kind of company too, you know, like if, if you're at IBM, it's pretty easy to find a way to do both. Um, if you want a ton of excitement and chaos, like go join a startup, like, you know, the company might shutter next week, but holy crap, you'll get to do some fun stuff in the meantime. Um, or, you know, you can go work for like an Oracle where, you know, you, it's going to be the, it's going to be the job. Like you get the job, you do the job, you have the job, it'll be steady. The paychecks will keep coming. It's not going to be exciting. And like, that can be a really good long-term way to like put food on the table. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, it's, you're not necessarily expected to like want to become some like prominent figure in the community or whatever. Like you could also just want a job and it's okay to just want a job. Um, you know, and I think I just, I, I just want to call that out because I think it's important not to feel like if you're not wanting to be some, you know, Twitter celebrity or, or writing articles or, or whatever, that's not, that's not a problem. That doesn't mean that you're like not ambitious enough. It just means that it's not your style. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it's like, like we said before, you shouldn't have to force that stuff. Like Mm -hmm. if you enjoy doing it, great, but it is easy to get that impression that you have to do that in order to get a job because that's kind of what you see through social media and the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, like I wouldn't want or expect everybody at the company to like have their own blog and have their own podcast and do all this crazy <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I mean, and you, you can also find that like, if you get a company where everybody who works at the company is, is like a, a minor Twitter celebrity, um, at some point somebody's got to do work, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, I think that that's all the questions that, that I've got. Uh, Eddie, do you have anything before we, we move uh, on? no, not right now. I'm good. I think, uh, I think you nailed it for, for all of our questions. Yeah. Um, definitely would, would want to have you back. Cause I, I think there's, there's more stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of really on. good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Loads of, loads of good advice. Um, so before we talk about, uh, nerd stuff and books and, and all that good stuff, um, do you have anything that you would want to plug? Like, 
I know you've got a newsletter, a blog, learn with Jason, all that stuff. So uh, where can people find all that, that great content? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you kind of listed them. I've got learnwithjason.dev. <laughs> um, that's the, the homepage for my, my Twitch stream. I do that a few times a week, um, usually twice a week where I pair program with somebody and we build something from scratch. It's super fun. It's, it's very interactive. Come join the chat. Uh, we do it live. I don't prep at all. That's the whole shtick of the show is I'm like woefully underprepared. <laughs> um, and <laughs> so I'm going to ask all the beginner questions. I'm going to be Googling for things. It's, it's a lot of fun. So I'd, I'd love to see you there. Um, I have langstorf.com where I write about things and on langstorf.com, there's a newsletter that, uh, will, you know, I've got some like guides for, tips to help with work-life balance and stuff. Uh, and also a, a, like a email list of, it'll send you content from the blog. So you don't have to go dig through it all yourself. Um, that's really it. I mean, otherwise I spend an inordinate amount of time on Twitter. I'm always happy to connect there and meet up. It's i uh, I'm Jay Langstorff on pretty much all the platforms. So wherever you're looking, I'm probably there. Cool. Yeah. I, uh, I personally subscribe to your newsletter and, uh, I like it. Um, you kind of undersold it there, <laughs> so I don't feel like you gave it a fair shake. <laughs> um, it's nice to get a newsletter that's like, Jason sat down and wrote this, and now it came to my inbox, and it's like, yeah, it links to an article, but uh, it's it's kind of like a personal connection through your newsletter. I appreciate um, that. And, yeah, uh, you and um, Chris Biscardi, who we also interviewed, uh, Chris spends like a lot of time and effort on his newsletter. It's like... Chris he sends out this post and it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Chris is uh he's like next level. He's, he's one of the smartest people I know. And um, you know, if, if you're going to follow one person after this podcast, it should probably be Chris and not me. <laughs> 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 That's not fair. We, we've got room in our inbox for both. Um, cool. So uh, yeah, at the end of every show we do, we do a little segment called nerd minute where we just talk about like video games or comics or whatever. So uh, Jason, you're the guest. Uh, what are you into lately? Uh, well, speaking of Chris Biscardi, he just, he got me playing Fortnite. Oh. Um, so the, the, the sneaky trick that happened is Chris and a lot of the folks in my chat have been telling me that I needed a streaming rig for a long time. And this was a Trojan horse. They were tricking me because what happened was I got, <laughs> I got the streaming rig and they were like, okay, now that you got a PC, you got to play Fortnite with us. So they were just trying to trick me into playing video games and I'm not a video gamer. So for the last couple of days, really? I've been running around in circles and like shooting at trees while they play Fortnite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's really fun. Like I, you know, I'm, I haven't been a gamer. I, I, my brother's always been a gamer, but I was always like the watch my brother play games cause he was way better at them. Um, so for me, like I don't own a PS4, or a, an Xbox or anything like that. I have been thinking about getting a switch though. Cause I just, I went to front end masters recently and I played overcooked oh, that game's awesome. on the switch. Yeah. Okay. It's like, I, I like party games. Like I like the ones that have two buttons. Those are, those <laughs> games are fun for me when they got like 15 buttons and a lot of stuff going on. I get a little overwhelmed, but <laughs> fair enough. I thought you were going to say rocket league, dude. I, was, I can't I was even waiting yeah. for rocket league. So <laughs> just watching rocket league makes my head hurt <laughs> like the the fact that you know you're you're trying to track all that all the different orientations so like which direction you're looking which direction your car is pointing which direction the ball is going is too much it's <laughs> like it already hurts my brain yeah my uh my sister she used to play uh like nes zelda yeah and used to love it 
And then she got um, a little bit older. You know, we got older and 3D Zelda came out and she was like, that just hurts my head. I can't think about <laughs> everything going on. So. <laughs> I heard really good things about Breath of the Wild. That's another reason that I was kind of thinking about the Switch is like, oh, man, I want to get Mario Kart and I want to get yeah. the, the Zelda game. And You really can't go yeah. wrong with that one. I don't have anything negative to say about it. Um, the story, I guess, could be a little more pronounced, but they kind of swap that out for the exploration aspect of it. Mm. So nice. There's a lot of mystery to it, I guess. Ah, like mm. spooky mystery music. Uh, maybe not that kind of like <laughs> Halloween mystery, but <laughs> kind of like what's going on with this world and what happened. And like, you're constantly finding yourself in situations where you're like, Oh, you know, how did this, you know, how did I get myself into this pickle? Oh, kind of interesting. Very because cool. you're traversing this huge map. So nice. Very yeah, cool. Sounds cool. I have to play that too. You play Switch? Oh man, yeah. Eddie. Uh, or I have a Wii U that I can probably get that version, but yeah, whatever. I do want to switch though. We're budget yeah. gamers. <laughs> I did. I uh, my friend used to have a Wii, and I remember that we would just like we never played any actual games. We always played like the the tennis and stuff. Wii like, sports. Yeah, it was only yeah. Wii Sports. That was like yeah. the only game that we played. Um, and I remember loving that. He actually got rid of it because he played it so much. He was like, I'm like losing friends <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of i didn't even think that was possible with a wii because like it's such a party game type yeah. of thing yeah <laughs> he's, he's losing friends playing yeah i mean well this is uh this is my friend nate who if you if you are on my my newsletter you'll hear about him a lot because yes i've known him forever but nate has a very like he's either 150 percent in or he's all the way out and so, like, he was like, I'm going to be the best at bowling. <laughs> Weird goals, but okay. <laughs> Not real bowling, yeah. we bowling. Yeah, we bowling. <laughs> World record holder at we bowling. That's awesome. Uh, <laughs> Eddie, you got anything? Uh, I don't have much. Um, I went to a painting class with my daughter. Um, mm, it was okay. in a comic book store. Um, and it was Halloween theme. We painted um, Nightmare Before Christmas. So, uh, nice. Cool. Jack Skellington and uh, Sally, I think her name is. Um, my, yeah. My daughter went like the other way with her painting and she didn't do what everyone else was painting and she just painted a cat. Uh, nice. <laughs> it was a Sally cat, so it had stitches and stuff. Uh, so it was pretty cool. Cool. Uh, I saw a bunch, a, a bunch of really cool toys. I showed my daughter all the toys that I had when I was a kid because they had this whole like '80s like toy section. Uh, nice. It was kind of cool. Um, I saw there's a did, wait. I have a I have an important question. Go ahead. Did you did you have the pizza shooter van? No, but it, they did have one there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They did. I, like I showed I her a, all the Ninja Turtles. Uh, it was pretty awesome. Because um, we did watch the Amazing. new series together, not the kind of crappy one that's out now, but the, the CG one that was before that. Um, uh, yeah. That that show was okay. really good. Um, but yeah, there was like a saga compendium now, which I was really tempted to buy. Okay. Um, yeah, I might end up buying that and spend a weekend reading that. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you're a comics nerd, but uh, saga is a pretty yeah. good book, uh, independent comic book. Um, as far as me, I, I went to medieval oh, times yeah, recently. Yeah. I don't know if, uh, 
Jason, if you're familiar with that, that if you ever saw the movie Cable, does that really count as as nerd thing? Like at this point, I almost feel like that's it's like to. I feel like that's crossed over into bro culture. That's like a, <laughs> that's like a, a well, it's like a rite of passage. I've uh, I've never been, and I've only known of it through the movie Cable Guy, mm. where like Jim Carrey has the chicken skin on his face, and he's oh god doing like a Silence yep. of the Lambs impression, yep. <laughs> <laughs> and like screaming over his mug of ale and stuff. Um. It was it was different than I thought it would be. Uh, Do you I kind of choose the color like, of the night and stuff like that, or the side that you're on? Is that how it works? Like you're on the red side or blue side? Or they have like they have like stadium okay. seating, so it's like the bleachers on one side, bleachers on the other, and there's three different sections each that has like their own okay, night so you root, or their own you land root or whatever. For your night. Yeah, so it's like whatever section you're in is colored, and then you're rooting for that okay. colored night. But uh, it had like this whole educational aspect to it. Like we went with a, a field trip group oh, okay. with uh, with my daughter. So I don't know if that's part of the regular show or oh. whatever. But um, <laughs> you were like, I came like to Quaff whole... and you're trying to teach me things. <laughs> I was like, kill him with the lands. No. <laughs> so so it's this whole like this whole anti-bullying thing, and uh, like the code of chivalry oh, really? how, oh cool uh, you're supposed to, yeah 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 it was like all these life lessons and stuff and i was like where is this coming from uh because again my only experience is like guys in full armor beating each other up on yeah. this movie so uh <laughs> they they did this whole like medieval tournament where they were like getting rings with uh lances and stuff on horseback and and whatnot uh one guy was like a professional horse trainer and he was like making the horse dance so there was like a lot of showmanship and um, I don't know a lot of a lot of non fighting. Okay. Okay. Mm. And I was like, okay, so they don't fight at medieval times. <laughs> and then at the end, like they fought anyway. <laughs> so there was like they were beating each other with, uh, you know, it was all choreographed. But like they'd hit the swords and there'd be like sparks flying and stuff. Cool. So it was uh, definitely a show. Um, but yeah, the the whole like storyline of it was oh we don't have to fight we shouldn't bully um we don't need to have this competition like everybody's a winner because they all like hit the bullseye with their lance on horseback Mm. um and then the knights were like we want to fight anyway and the queen was like okay (laughs) and then they did (laughs) so uh yeah it was uh it it was an experience how Um, was the food uh it was it was okay it was like a like a quarter chicken and like one a uh, third of a baked potato that was cooked oh, to death okay. <laughs> and some Texas toast. Did you, you, you didn't eat like the, the giant Turkey leg. That's what or I was picturing. No, man, I, they, they said Cornish hen and I, I was expecting that or like, yeah, the, the Jim Carrey yeah. Turkey leg. Oh wait, the, the Cornish but, uh, hens are like this big, yeah. they're like little baby hens. Yeah, it was, it wasn't that it was just a quarter of chicken. So, Oh, well, I know, right? My childhood. <laughs> <laughs> it's, <laughs> But uh, yeah, and so the plate was pewter, but the the mug was plastic. It was it was this weird experience, yeah, that's... man. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> All right, well, yeah, I think speaking you, of dinner, gotta go at least. I once. think it might be it might be time for me to head out. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We're uh, we're about out of time anyway. So um, yeah. Thank you so much for yeah, coming on the show, and uh, please please come back. We, we'd love to have you back. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This is this was a lot of fun. Um, I I really appreciate it. Uh, I hope that you had a better dinner than medieval times since then. 
hundred percent. All right. Thanks. Y'all. All right, Jason, we'll let Bye. you go. Thanks for listening to tech junior. Head on over to our site at techjr.dv for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter and get an email from us once a week with the latest episode and some other stuff. Uh, if you'd like to support us, you can do so by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Special thanks to all our current patrons. And we've also got a Teespring store where you can get some cool tech jar swag like t-shirts and stickers designed by Eddie and I. You can find links to all that stuff on our website under support. Follow us on Twitter at Tech Jar Podcast. You can follow me at Lee Warwick Jr. And Eddie at E-Z-0-T-E-R-0. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, next week, we are going to be talking about Advent of Code. So over the Christmas break, or actually really like over the month of December, uh, I went and did this coding challenge called Advent of Code, which is at adventacode.com. So it was all about um, algorithms and like kind of leak code-ish problems. And I went ahead and solved them in Python, which is a language that I don't really know that well. So uh, it was a real trip, and Eddie and I are going to talk about that next week on Wednesday. Hope to see you there. All right, that's all I've got this week. Um, Yeah, have a good one. Hope to see you next Wednesday, and keep coding. Bye.